Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible's open up to Nehemiah, the 8th chapter. If you'll just kind of open up to around the middle of the Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, that's usually around the middle of the Bible. But just take a left from there. You'll find the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8 for uh, an extensive period of time today. So get your marker laid there in Nehemiah 8 as we work together in the Scriptures. I'm so thankful to have the opportunity this morning to stand before you and to present some things from the Word of God. And this morning, not only am I presenting things from the Word of God, but this morning I'm presenting some things about the Word of God. And I think you'll see why that's so obvious and evident right here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 1. In Nehemiah 8 and in verse 1, we're told that all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Anai, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalon on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shebathiah, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezebed, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Let's just stop right there. I have always loved the book of Nehemiah and this chapter in particular because it tells of the time after the Babylonian captivity when God's people tried to do the right thing again. For so long, these Jews had been away from the Lord. They had been far from what God had wanted them to be. And now here, the answer to that problem was to do exactly what these people did in Nehemiah chapter 8, and that is to go back to the book. Long before the word Watergate became a dirty word in America's political lexicon, it meant Nehemiah chapter 8. It meant the place where the Jews came back to the Lord. And that return was predicated on their determination to be a people who were focused and centered on the Word of God. They wanted to be people of the book. And I find the example here in Nehemiah chapter 8 to just be incredible and helpful. You know, there was a time in generations past where I think people looked at us as being people of the book. 
Why, if there's one thing that folks knew about members of the church of Christ is that those people, they take the Bible seriously. They do. Those people, they know their Bible. They read the Bible. They study the Bible. They're always making reference to the Bible. They can quote passages from the Bible. Why, if you have a question about the Bible, go ask those folks because they know the Bible. They take it seriously. Sadly, though, I'm not so sure that we have that widespread reputation anymore. It seems as if maybe in recent years, in recent decades, that we've, we've lost a little bit of ground with that. I think our busy culture certainly has something to do with that, kind of just pulling us away from the book, even pulling us away from the Lord, because there's just so many options and so many things to do in our world. And as a result, we're not as grounded and as centered in the Scriptures as we ought to be. If that is true, even to some small degree, then maybe it's time for us to pick up our Bibles and make a trip down to the Watergate as well. Because that very same determination that those Jews had in Nehemiah chapter 8 to be people of the book, that needs to be our determination as well. And I do want to suggest to you this morning that this idea of going back to the book and being people of the book, it has to be a whole lot more than just some sentimental idea. It has to be more than a fancy slogan, and it has to be more even than just good intentions. I believe that there are some specific things that we need to be doing in order to merit that designation. And the fact is, if we're not doing those things, then we are not people of the book. Regardless of what we tell others, and regardless of what we tell even ourselves. This morning I want to show you from Nehemiah the 8th chapter what it means and what it takes to go back to the book and to be people of the book. And that all has to start exactly where it started for these folks in Nehemiah 8. Did you notice there in the first four verses of the chapter? We have to start by just reading the book. That's what the beginning of the chapter is describing for us. The reading, the public reading of God's Word. Now, you should know that what Ezra was commissioned to do there on that day was actually something that was mandated in the law of God. This should not have been an unusual or out of the ordinary occurrence at all. In fact, would you just step out of Nehemiah for a moment? Step out of Nehemiah and look in Deuteronomy, please. In Deuteronomy chapter 31. In Deuteronomy, the 31st chapter, as Moses is blessing the people before they're about to go into the promised land, these are some of his final words to them. In Deuteronomy 31, in verse 10, Moses says this, Deuteronomy 31, 10, Moses commanded them that at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all of Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that He will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it, they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess." And so you see, there was supposed to be some regular reading of the Word of God. And you should know, this is not the only place where this kind of thing is instructed. If you're still here in Deuteronomy, just turn back a few chapters to chapter 17. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, look at what kings were to be involved in. Moses says to the Israelites, hey guys, there's going to come a day 
where I know, and the Lord knows, you're going to want a king. And when that happens, you need to be looking for a certain kind of king. He needs to have a certain kind of character and be about certain things. And so he says in Deuteronomy 17 and in verse 18, he's talking of the king. He says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children is Israel. That, of course, is just a sampling of several verses in the Old Testament that direct God's people to be regularly in and around His Word. And there are plenty of occasions where the blessings and the curses are outlined for either reading or not reading His Word. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 is one of those places. And you know what? That's really not hard for us to understand, is it? That God's Word, God's law, that that is His primary vehicle by which He communicates with human beings even today? Why, think about it. Without this book, without this book, how would we even really know anything about the Lord? Certainly there would be some things that maybe we could ascertain about the Lord apart from this book. For example, there is evidence for God in creation. We look at a sunrise or a sunset or the changing of the seasons. and All of those things point us to God and we learn some things about God that way. And certainly as well, I think that sense of ought that is built within us. I know that I ought to do these things and I know that I ought not to do other things. I ought not to steal. I ought not to kill people randomly and those sorts of things. I think that sense of ought also kind of points us to something beyond us. It points us to God. I think in those ways we'd, we'd have some idea about the Lord. But what about more specifically? What about how to worship the Lord? What about matters of salvation? What about whenever I violate that sense of odd and I'm not doing what I ought to do? How do I correct that? How do I get right with God? How do I get forgiveness for that? Well, the fact of the matter is there's only one place that that question and a thousand others like it can be answered and that is by reading God's Word, the Bible. And I'd like to think, I'd like to think that you knew that. I'm going to guess you probably knew that before I ever even began this sermon this morning. I think most of us understand, yeah, you got to read the Bible so that you can know the Lord and know what you ought to do. And yet oftentimes, even as I say that, Bible reading, let's just painfully acknowledge, Bible reading is not the fixture in our lives regularly that it ought to be. It just kind of gets, it just kind of gets squished. It just kind of gets squeezed out because of all the other things that we're doing in our lives. You know, Bible reading in many ways is kind of like uh, dieting and, and exercise. You know, we all nod our heads in agreement. Yes, yes, you should do that. You should eat right. You should exercise. You should take care of your physical health. And yet, all too often, we lack the discipline to follow through with and actually do those things. And I believe sometimes the reason for that it's because we just don't have the sense of urgency to do it. And in particular, when it comes to reading the Bible, 
We don't have the urgency to read the Scriptures the way that these people in Nehemiah chapter 8 had an urgency to read it. Just think about it. Where were these people in their spiritual lives? These people were away from God. They've been away from God for a long time. And they, at this point in time, they are trying to start obeying God's commands. They're trying to begin and renew that relationship with the Lord. And I believe for us, one of the biggest barriers to reading the Bible is that we just kind of feel like, well, well, we're already doing it. I'm already serving the Lord. I'm already obeying God. I'm already doing what the Bible says. I mean, come on. Why do I need to read it? Been there, read that, done that. And so there's not this overwhelming urgency to read it because I'm already obeying God's Word. But can I ask you something? If it were true that you were 100% in obedience to the Word of God, I mean you were just doing all of it, all of the time, would that really mean that you really don't need to read the Bible? That you could just kind of close it up and put it on the shelf? Is that really what that would mean? I don't believe so, and I don't think that you even believe so. Because just getting into obedience to the Word of God, that is not the only reason that we read our Bibles. Can you let that sink in for just a second? In fact, I think I could make a pretty good argument that finding out what to do so that we can obey God, that's not even the primary reason that we read the Bible. I believe we read the Bible first and foremost so that we can come to know the Lord, to find out who God is, what He likes, what He doesn't like, what He's all about. I come to know God's character and His plans and His purposes and His promises. In short, I read my Bible so that I can know my Creator. Or what about this? I read my Bible so that I can become conformed to the image of God's Son. That's what Christianity is all about, isn't it? Being like Christ. Well, well, how do I find out about Jesus? Certainly I can learn some stuff from secular history and what other people say about Him. But the fact of the matter is, I'm never going to really know what I need to know about Jesus unless I read my Bible. When I read my Bible, I'll see Christ in action. I'll read the words that He spoke. I'll learn how He acted in certain situations so that I then can be molded into His image and be more like Him. And then maybe we ought to flip the coin. What about the other side of that? Jesus is the truth. But what about on the other side? What about, what about sin and error? How will I ever be able to spot the activity of the devil without reading my Bible? You know, the Bible not only defines sin, and not only does it identify what attitudes and behaviors are sinful, but the Bible does us one better. It actually provides us help for guarding against sin and error. And have you ever thought about this? The Bible doesn't just tell us about matters of right and wrong. The Bible has books in it that talk to us about bests. And I'm talking about books like Proverbs or James. Those books don't just talk about sin. No, they also talk about the best way to live, like don't overstay your welcome when you've been invited into your neighbor's house. Or don't go meddling in other people's business. That's like taking a passing dog by the ear. It won't work out good for you. That's just the kind of good, practical, straightforward wisdom that you get when you read the Word of God. 
And then, of course, it is true that we read our Bibles so that we can learn the commands of God and then obey Him. And maybe I ought to just add right here that if we do think that, oh, I've kind of already got all that down pat, been there, read that, done that, then perhaps that ought to prompt us to do a little bit more reading about attitudes of heart, like for, say, example, uh, humility or patience or our temper or not being materialistic and self-control because, let's be honest, none of us have ever fully mastered those things and we never will. Maybe that ought to push us to be more diligent to read this book. But in the end, being people of the book, it means that we see the value of the book And then we want to actually open it up and read it. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, there is an urgency for that and it is the very same urgency that you and I must have today. Now as you turn back to Nehemiah chapter 8, can I get you to focus in on verse number 5? Would you look at verse 5 again? This is what I deem to be just maybe one of the most moving passages in all of the Old Testament. Because as Ezra opens up the book of the law, and as he opens it, and the people see him open it, the end of verse 5 then says that all the people stood. Wow. What kind of power does this book possess? It calls people to stand up. And you know what that says to me? What that says to me is that says to me that these folks in Nehemiah chapter 8 are people who have respect for the book. And I love that. I want you to notice that the passage does not say that Shephatiah spoke up and he said, well, I'm not really sure that we can trust the Bible. Don't you know the Bible's filled with all kinds of errors and contradictions in it? I don't think we ought to be reading that. Nope. Nope, the text doesn't say that. Furthermore, the text does not say that Jebusiah, he grumbled and said, Why are we reading that dusty old book? The Bible is old and outdated. It's irrelevant. We've heard this stuff a million times before. We need an update. Nope. There's none of that going on here either. These people had come together because they hungered to be the people of God once more and that was only going to happen by returning to that book that Ezra was holding in his hands. And so when Ezra opened the book, The people showed their respect for what was contained in the book by standing up. And i got to tell you, I want us to be more like that. I think this is an area where we could probably do some improving. I want to encourage more of that kind of respect. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not suggesting in any way that we want to become Bible alators where we have to stand in the presence of the Bible every time it comes near us or that we go to the extreme where we're, we're bowing down and we're worshiping the book itself. No, we don't want to treat the book like it possesses some kind of magic powers. Let's just be reminded that the Bible is a tool. It is. It's a tool. It is a, a means to an end and the end is our great God who we worship and who we serve. But we do need to remember that it is a very special tool. It is a very unique book breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3 says. And as a result, it deserves to be treated in a very special way. Do you you think about that very often? Let me ask you this. 
How do you treat the United States flag? Some of you may have a United States flag that uh, is at your home. Gentlemen, maybe even some of you are responsible for displaying the flag at appropriate holidays, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, Fourth of July, that sort of thing. Now, I realize that the flag is not our country. And I realize as well that the flag is not freedom. The flag is just fabric. Red and white stripes, blue field with a bunch of stars on it. I get that. But it is a symbol of our country, is it not? It is a symbol of the freedoms that we enjoy. Which is why if somebody came to your house and they tried to to tear that flag down, if somebody wanted to spit on your flag, if they tried to desecrate it in some way, you wouldn't stand for that, would you? If somebody maybe tried to take your flag and burn it, you'd be highly upset about that, wouldn't you? And why? Because that flag, what it represents, it commands our respect and it deserves to be treated right. Do you see the parallel then with how we treat the Bible? In fact, in some ways, my parallel with the flag and the Bible really kind of starts to break down right about here. Because the Bible, the Bible is not just a symbol, is it? No, it is the very voice of God. Through centuries of time, God is speaking to you and to I even this day. He has labored diligently to preserve this book and to provide it for us. And as a result, today we live in a, just a remarkable time, just incredible Bible abundance where we can choose the Bible that we want, the color of the cover and the size of the print and the translation that we read from. We're just so blessed to have this book. Do we realize how blessed we are to have it? Do we understand the worth of this book? How lost and hopeless we would be without it? And if the answer to all those questions is yes then do we accord it with respect? Or is maybe your Bible, is it just the place where you go stuffing random papers? Maybe it's the place where you keep your quarterly lesson book for Bible class. Maybe it's the place where you stuff some flowers and press them from the wedding and keep them safely in there. Maybe your Bible is that item that on Sunday morning where you're getting ready to come to church, it's the one thing that you just can never seem to find. Where's my Bible? Don't know where my Bible is. Can't find my Bible. Hadn't even touched it in the last seven days. And maybe even after church is your Bible that item that you just toss into the back seat. Maybe it even falls down into the floorboard occupying the same space as the dirt and the mud and the debris. You know, the truth is... Maybe we would do better in taking seriously what the book says if we would take care of the book like it was worth taking seriously. It's not my desire here to belabor this point. I don't want to do that at all. But I do think it is worth considering that those people in Nehemiah chapter 8, they respected the Word of God. And if we're going to be people of the book, we need to have respect for the Word of God. And maybe what we need to notice as well, maybe most from Nehemiah 8, is just the reverent attention that these people are paying to the Word. You know, these people are not just 
casual listeners. They're not just passively having the words fall upon their ears and, okay, I heard some sounds and yeah, some stuff was said, but I really don't remember all of it. No, these people were showing their deep respect for the Word by being increasingly attentive to the Word. And you know what that says to me? That says to me that these are folks who were trying to understand the book. I really like how the ESV renders verse 8. Would you look at verse 8 again? It says that they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And that is exactly what's going on there, isn't it? In fact, verse 7 just really reinforces that even more. After that long list of names, nearly impossible to read. I'm not going to try to read those names again. It says that all of those men were there on that day to help the people understand the law. They were there to help give the sense so that the hearers could understand and comprehend what they were hearing. You have to remember that many of these people in that audience were people that were born as Chaldeans. They were born in Babylon. They, didn't, they weren't born in Jerusalem. They were born in Babylon. So they had no sense of what the Word of God was really even talking about. They didn't have any frame of reference for this stuff about, about the feasts and about the customs and about the laws and how all that worked and how it worked in the culture. That, that wasn't the culture that they had grown up in. They didn't have any idea of how it played out in their lives. No familiarity with it. And so for the Bible to just be read for them at face value... That just wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense. Just wouldn't have done a whole lot for them. Somebody was going to have to come along and say, Hey, this is what this means. And now as a result of us understanding what this means, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to follow through with what we've understood. And you know, I think sometimes this is where our Bible reading kind of sometimes goes off the track a little bit. You know, we do fine when we're reading over and say, I don't know, Genesis or Exodus. The stories are so vivid there. Or maybe when we get over to Samuel and Kings and we're reading about all these great characters over there. I mean, it's pretty easy to read that stuff. The story's right there for the taking. I mean, come on. What's so hard about the account of, of David and Goliath? Not really anything hard about that. We might have some questions about the, the geography of the battlefield. Or maybe we might be curious about how do you convert the shekels in Goliath's spear to English units of measurement. Maybe that would be helpful for us. But I think most of us, we could read the story of David and Goliath and we could understand the basic premise of that and we could come away tremendously encouraged. But what about, what about for example, the story of Job? And I mean more than just the first couple of chapters and the last couple of chapters. What about all that stuff in the middle? What's going on in there? That seems like some pretty heavy stuff. Or what about the book of Ezekiel? Or maybe some of the other minor prophets. I mean, come on, Hosea is told to marry a prostitute. Whoa! What's going on there? What's that all about? Or, you know, maybe we come to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all that red-letter stuff, the stories and the life of Jesus, hey, I, I'm good with that. I can follow along with that. Then we get over to the book of Acts. We're reading about the early church, those early Christians, what they did to continue the story of Jesus. Reading about Peter. We're reading about Paul. But then all of a sudden, bang! We're in Romans. Whoa! What is Romans all about? 
And then before you know it, bang, we're in Corinthians. All this doctrinal stuff going on in there. And then bang, we're in Galatians, Thessalonians, and what in the world is going on in Revelation? And as a result, that is about the time that a whole lot of folks just bloop, close up their Bible and say, that's enough for me. The Bible is too hard to understand. I'm going to have to leave that to the intellectuals. I'll leave that to the people who are smart and devote their lives to studying this stuff. I'll let them figure it out. Well, hold on just a second. Would you look with me in Hebrews chapter 5? In Hebrews chapter 5, the Hebrew writer says that there were some folks, even in the audience to whom he was writing, who were still stuck in first gear spiritually. Maybe we might say they were still stuck in first grade spiritually. And so he says that they need to do better. In Hebrews chapter 5, I'm reading here in verse 11, he says, about this, we have much to say. And it's hard for me to explain it to you since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you're needing someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Chapter 6 verse 1. Therefore, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Do you see it there? Do more, the Hebrew writer says. Hey, it's great to know those Old Testament stories about Noah and the flood and about Jonah and the big fish and all that sort of stuff. But you know what? A time comes when we need to move beyond that. We need to progress beyond those things. We need to move on to maturity. And this morning, you and I, we need to ask, where is our diligence? Where is our desire to understand the Word of God, to understand the whole Word of God? Where is our eagerness to get the sense, to comprehend what the Scriptures are saying to us? You know, the fact of the matter is, it's not all that hard for us to find some of the answers and the understanding that we need. You know, these people back here in their day, they may have been a little bit limited in the places they could go to get the understanding that they needed, but for us... It's all around us. If I'm struggling, if I've got some kind of a hang-up on something in the Bible, hey, I just fire up Google. There's all kinds of material on the Internet. Lots of good material on the Internet that we could use to help get that understanding. I can open up a commentary, open up a concordance or a lexicon. Those things are readily available. Get some answers. I could just go to a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, a preacher, an elder, ask a question. There's lots of opportunities. Yes, being people of the book, it does mean that I want to read the Bible and it does mean I'm going to respect the Bible. But above that, I want to know what it means. And I will not stop until I understand God's Word. Because finally this morning, once I do understand this book, well, that then makes me ready and equipped to obey the words of the book. And that is precisely what these people did in Nehemiah chapter 8. Would you drop down a little bit as you go back to Nehemiah 8? Would you drop down a little bit in the text in chapter 8? In Nehemiah 8 and in verse 13, we're told that these people, they didn't just read the Bible that one day when they assembled at the water gate. No, there was an eagerness to keep on reading it. Verse 13 
in Nehemiah chapter 8 and in verse 13, the text says that on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Don't you love that? And they found in it that it was written that the law that had been commanded by Moses, that the people of Israel, that they should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Well, hey, we're, we're in the seventh month right now. And we read something here that says that we need to be dwelling in booths and there needs to be a feast going on at this particular time. So they said that it should be proclaimed and it should be published in all their towns and in Jerusalem. And so verse 16, what did these people do in response to what they read? So the people went out and they brought them and they made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. Verse 17. And all of the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths. And they lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to the day that the people of Israel had not, to the days of these people of Israel, they had not done so. And then the last part of verse 17, in response to obeying God's word, the text says that these people, these people greatly rejoiced. Do you see that this is where Bible reading and Bible respecting and Bible understanding must ultimately lead. It must lead to Bible obedience. We are not reading the Bible simply to you know, acquire some kind of abstract theoretical knowledge. Maybe someday I'll be on Jeopardy and there'll be a whole list of Bible questions and oh, I'll be able to buzz in and I'll be able to answer all those questions. That's not the purpose of us reading the Bible. No, we are reading the Bible so that we can act based upon what we have read and understood. Now, as I said a moment ago, that's not the only reason for reading the Scriptures, but it's a big one. It's a big reason for reading this book. In fact, James bears that out in James chapter 1. In James, the first chapter, James actually kind of pokes fun a little bit at folks who read and hear the Word of God, but then they don't really do anything in response to what they have heard and read. And so he writes in James chapter 1, this is verse 22. James 1 verse 22, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then he goes away. He goes away and at once he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he, the doer, will be blessed in his doing. It's about doing, isn't it? Hearing's good. Listening is good. Understanding is really good. But it has to lead to doing. And I think sometimes we understand about this, this mirror thing, don't we? You know, in the summertime, it's not uncommon to see grown men out in their front yard, maybe doing yard work or maybe mowing the lawn, and they're doing that without a shirt on. They've taken their shirt off, and they're maybe just wearing like a pair of, pair of ball shorts, and they're out there doing all that yard work. And ladies, when you see those guys out in the yard working like that, it's, it's usually not a, not a lust issue. Usually it's kind of a, you know, it's just kind of a gross issue. It's just kind of a... Ugh, sort of thing. Because you see those guys out there and they've got all their, all their blood just all hanging out for everybody to see. And sometimes ladies, when they see guys like that out and about like that, will sometimes even ask, well, what was he thinking? 
What was he thinking today? When he looked at himself in the mirror before he walked outside, did he think to himself, oh, I've still got it? And the answer is, yes, he did. He did think, I've still got it. And of course, if that's what he was thinking, well, he's fooling himself. He is deceiving himself. You know what? That's the same thing that happens whenever you and I, when we open up the Bible, when we look into this mirror and we see that what's in here is not actually matching up with what's on here. There's some incongruency there, but we decide to just, eh, just kind of close that and I'm going to go on my merry way and I'm not going to do anything about that. We're deceiving ourselves. That is folly, James says. And that is exactly what happens whenever people come to, to a Bible study and they read and they study together with other Christians, but, but they're not changed by that. They're not transformed by that. That's what happens when people listen to a sermon and they nod along, maybe even say amen a couple of times, but you know what? The words of that sermon don't ever escape the church building. It doesn't affect how they live their day-to-day life. That is exactly what happens every time that we encounter the Word of God and we tell ourselves, I've still got it. No, sir. No, ma'am. Not until we are doing God's Word. Everything that is contained in this book, it is designed to change us, to help us, to mold us, to shape us, to develop us, to be more like the Lord. And if we are not allowing this book to bring us into harmony, bring us into obedience to Him, then let's be clear, we are not. We are not people of the book. Bible reading, it must become Bible living. Now, right about now, somebody's looking at all of that and is thinking, oh yes, that's important. That's very, very important. And I am, at some point, I'm going to get real serious about that. In fact, maybe we're looking at the calendar and we're thinking, you know what? January 1st. I mean, that's just, what, four, four and a half months away? January 1st, New Year's resolution, I'm going to read my Bible daily. Going to be about the business of that in the new year. And you know what? That would be a good resolution. But I will remind you, that's four and a half months away. That's a long time from now. And you know what? This can also even be something that, well, you know what? Sometime this coming week, I'm going to get serious about this. No. No, being people of the book, getting back to the book, it begins with that urgency that needs to start now, right now. Yes, I realize for the last half hour or however long I've been talking, yeah, we've been in the Word. That's been good for these few minutes together. But it has to be about a whole lot more than just those few times a week when we're assembled with the church and we're involved in the reading and the studying of God's Word. This needs to be about in my daily life. How I live from day to day, even in the midst of all the things that are going on in my life and in this world. School's going to be starting up in Pulaski County coming up well, tomorrow for many of us. That's going to create all kinds of busyness and hecticness in our life. In just a few months, all the holiday season's going to be starting. The traveling and the coming and going, that's going to make things difficult as well. We've got jam-packed schedules. But you know what? Even with all that is going on in our world and in our lives, this sermon, is about us just stopping everything and asking the question, are we people of the book today, right now? 
And if the answer to that is not a resounding yes, then what we need to do is we need to pick up our Bible and we need to make a trip down to the water gate with those people from Nehemiah chapter 8. And we need to begin giving God's Word the full import of priority that it deserves. And that needs to start right now. Can we pray about that? Would you pray with me please? Our dear gracious God, our Father in heaven, Father, we come before you so very thankful for your word. We're thankful that in your infinite wisdom you have chose to reveal your mind to us through a book that we can read and we can understand and we can know how it is that we ought to live so that we can serve you. Father, we thank you for your servants Ezra and Nehemiah and for the others that we just read about who help your people to come back to you and how that all started with your word. Father, we're thankful for the way that they challenge us and provoke us to want to be people of the book. Help us, Father, not to ever take for granted the fact that we have your word so readily accessible to us. Help us, Father, not to become complacent or to be distracted by other things. Help us, Father, to be more diligent to read and to respect and to understand and to then live out your word in our lives. Father, we ask and we beg for your forgiveness for those occasions in our lives when we have allowed other things to slip in and to pull us away and to become priorities that would prevent us from being involved in your word. Help us, Lord, to do better starting right now. We thank you most of all for your son Jesus, the living embodiment of your word, for how he helps us each day. We thank you for him and for the salvation that's made possible through his blood. And it is in his name that we offer this prayer. And amen.